Welcome to the Milwaukee Product Brew Podcast. Every month at Northwestern Mutual's Cream City Labs, product leaders from across the city gather to talk about business and leadership, emerging technologies, and share the tips and tricks to become a better product manager. You can join us too. Just visit meetup.com and search for the Milwaukee Product Brew. This episode takes us to May 21st, 2019, where Agile coaches Jeff Maletsky and Jeff Bobles showcased the superpowers of product ownership. They shared their step-by-step process for forecasting a product's success, implementing feedback loops, and increasing your confidence in developing new products. We're here to talk about the superpowers of product ownership. Um, let's start with a little introduction. So this is Jeff Muskie over here. Uh, Jeff's got a lot of experience being a developer. He started out as a game developer. Then he was a product owner. He's been a scrum master. He's been a natural coach. Um, he's also a captain of the United States Army. So if you hear Jeff swear, that's where it comes from. Like, he just can't control it sometimes. That's just Jeff. Um, Jeff uh, and I also have a podcast that we run, the Agile Wire. So we just shameless, our only shameless plug. We just threw that up there. Um, just started it. It's MVP right now, which we're going to talk about what that really means. Uh, it's releasable. It's out there. But it's improving every single episode that we put out there. Cool, and this is the one and only fantastic Mr. Google. So very similar background, uh, professional scrum trainer with scrum.org. Uh, he's been a product owner, scrum master, development team member. Uh, he also has a, a side hustle, uh, his humane consulting. Um, I really like his passion and his motto is to make work suck less. So I think that's a pretty lofty goal. He does a pretty good job with it. And both of us are senior agile coaches out at CUNA Mutual as well. So pretty uh, extensive work in financial sector at this point. Cool, and I didn't mention that Jeff is also a professional scrum trainer at scrum.org, so we... Well, Yay, who knows? Yeah. On All right. the show. All right, so quick question for you guys. Uh, when will you be done? Anybody get, ever ever get asked this question? I yes. have all the damn time. <laughs> so, how do you currently answer that question? When it's done. When it's done? When it's done? Okay. How about... Every two weeks. Every two weeks. Okay. In production every two weeks? Sometimes. Okay, sometimes. How else would we like to answer this question? Yeah. When do you need it done by? When do you need it done by? Okay. So we will let our stakeholders drive our, our completion. Okay. It's interesting. Alright, so anybody doing something like this? Um, let's say you're at a sprint review. And your stakeholder asks, when is item A going to be released? And you have this backlog and it's ordered, and you've got, you know, PBI 1, it's a 13, PBI 2, it's an 8, you know, 3 is a 5, and you've got all these other things. They want to know when this one down the backlog is going to be, be done. It's that awesome moment in life that your sixth grade math teacher prepared you for. It's the day that math is going to save your life and help you answer this question, right? <laughs> Just simple division, right? So let's just play this out a little bit here. So no fancy tricks, no smoke and mirrors. We've got an average velocity and we're just going down our backlog, figuring out roughly when that's gonna be uh, deployed. So sprint six is when we're gonna be done with item A for our average velocity. Yep. Anybody doing anything like this? Some, yeah. Cool, most of the tools out there, like TFS or Jira or Rally, they've got this stuff built in. You just turn on forecasting and it draws lines in your product backlog and just says, based off of your previous velocity, uh, here's where we, you know, here's what might be in the upcoming sprints, and it gives you some kind of forecast. 
Okay. So this is this is one way that you could forecast. Yeah, we'd like to think about this as forecasting 101. All right, this is table stakes. The bare minimum that you need is an ordered backlog with efforts assigned to it, right? So in, in, as Jeff was saying, most of our tools give us this out of the box. But yeah, so what are some of the problems with this type of forecasting? Anyone have any ideas? Yeah. Unplanned work. Unplanned work, yeah. We're not really accounting for that. What else? Sizing, you're wrong. Estimations could be off. Sure, estimations could be off. Sure. Amount of work we get done might be different, right? Like, we might pull people on and off of this team. Capacity changes, so they're not fully 100% probably as well. Lower, so that fluctuates on Yep, capacity changes, vacations, holidays. Whatever, right? Yeah. Average velocity isn't always the greatest of uh, measurements either, because averages have problems. Yeah, there, sure. there's there's high and low ranges. That's just saying that's the average. What if you have a bunch of low dipping sprints that happens, right? Okay. And velocity can be gained and misused, and weird things can happen to it at times. Okay. So some teams have gone to something more like this. This is called a release burn down. And so what this shows is we've got how many points we get done each sprint. So we have like seven sprints of data right here. And it just says, you know, sprint one, we were here, and then we got to this one point, then we got to this point, and then this point, and it keeps trending downwards. Then we go ahead and we look at our, our forecast, and we say, here's a, you know, average scenario. Here's an optimistic, and here's a pessimistic, and this gives us a cone of uncertainty and a range of when we might have all these things done. And, and this, is, this is better, right? Because we have a cone of uncertainty, we have a range. It's not just one date. It's not like it's going to be sprint six. So we keep using that cone of uncertainty. I just want to be clear. Um, when we're think, talking and using cone of uncertainty, we've all seen it on the weather channels, the hurricane, right? Because it's a complex system, all, uh, the further it is from today, the more inaccurate our guesses are going to be. So that's why that cone spreads out the further it is from today. So when we say cone of uncertainty, that's what we're talking about inside of here. So if we were thinking about the previous um, forecasting tools, just a basic 101, maybe this is a 201 type of forecasting, but what, what are some of the issues that you see using this tool? Yeah, actually, that's, that's a great point. Can you flip back real fast? So this, this is, um, not that it answers your question, but uh, for those of you who may be familiar, this is often referred to as a burn down. There's also an inverse of this, which is a burn up. And so essentially, this y-axis, right now it's just at 250, you would have a top line, which represents all of your scope of your backlog, and instead of burning down to your scope line, you burn up to the scope line. And so, for instance, in this scenario, if, we, if our backlog represented 250, um, story points of work and we added 50 points to it, our top line would simply go up by 50 points. And so it's a much easier visual representation of, oh, we just added 50 points of scope to our backlog. Nothing affects our trend line or our burn up to that. It's just easier to represent. Uh, personally, I think this is more popular because psychologically we like burning down to zero versus burning up to some unknown and always growing scope line. But anyway. Yep. What, what, other, what other potential issues, though, with this type of forecasting? How about how confident are we? Do we have any indication on that? Like what the average optimistic, pessimistic are? Not really. How confident do we need to be? 
Great. something earlier about dates, right? Like the Super Bowl doesn't move, right? <laughs> and if we're put, if we're an ad agency and we have to put something out, like that date is not going to move. Many of us work in the financial sectors, right? The government doesn't care about when your product is going live when they're putting in regulations. You will hit those dates. And then sometimes it, it doesn't matter that much. Like it's just a meeting with some leaders or something and we can show mock-ups or we can show other things that the product isn't done. Uh, we can talk about it. We don't have to, show the, have to show the real thing. So maybe a lower percentage is okay in that case. It depends on the situation, right? right. How much risk are we taking? That previous one doesn't allow us to even factor in risks that are out there. Maybe there's that development team down the, down the hall that just always is overriding your test environment, right? Or there's, um, we always find these performance bugs uh, because our infrastructure isn't stable or something like that. We're not taking any of those things into consideration. Okay, so what if we could simulate the future based on the past and could choose our risk tolerances? Would you be interested in something that could do that? Because yes. boy, do we have the tool for you. <laughs> yes, we do, because that's what this talk's about. So hopefully we can help you change the way you answer this question when you're going to be done. And the way we're going to do this is Monte Carlos. Has anyone ever heard of Monte Carlos? Yeah, there's a few people here. So what is a Monte Carlo? So Monte Carlo is just a tool that simulates the future. And you put in some data. What we're going to do differently, though, than what's been done in the past, is we're going to put in empirical data, so data that from previous sprints, from things we've known that happened in the past, and then we're going to simulate the, the path, the information of the past, and say if that stuff happens in the future, what might happen? Now we're going to show you a tool that's free. We get, there's there's no correlation here of like we're not getting paid for this or anything. Uh, it's free. It's something you can download on the internet right now. But we've been using it for a couple of years with teams, and we found it to be very, very valuable, uh, and it's very easy to use. And so what you get is something that looks like this that has the percentage, the number of sprint that you think you'll get done, and the date that that would happen. With this, if you could just show this chart at a sprint review to your stakeholders, or and when you're starting, maybe think about when you want to release something, maybe even how you're ordering your backlog, this could help drive what's in and what's out, how, by when you might be releasing. This can be extremely powerful. Oftentimes, we get to the point where teams are being asked, can you get more velocity for me? I want more stuff. And really what stakeholders are asking for is, I just wanted to get the stuff out in production sooner. So if you can show them this and say, hey, there's multiple levers we can pull, we're gonna show you this tool and all the different levers. It's not always about getting more stuff done. Sometimes it's about cutting scope. Sometimes it's about reducing risk. Sometimes it is about what can we get out of the team's way or do we need to add a new skill set? Do we need to move to some dependencies? Whatever it is. But there's many levers you can pull. It's not always about just increasing velocity. All right, so let's just jump, jump into, into the tool. Okay, so um, we did want to call out, like, if, if you are so interested in going and taking a look at it yourself and downloading it, I'm just going to pull up Chrome real fast here. Or is that this not going to display? It. You're going to have to pull it over, I think, because it's the second screen. Oh, you've extended the monitor in the worst way possible. All right, so let's just say, real quick, um, so you just Google throughput forecaster. Oh, that's how you do it? Okay. Yeah, if you just do that, it's the first thing that comes up. Is that how you spell it? Close enough. It's at top one. Top yeah. one. 
and gives you a little information about it. There's a link down there towards the bottom that allows you to download it right there. By. There you go. And this will be a direct download right to the Excel spreadsheet that we're going to be opening up and using here. So, so this is a wasn't tool sure if anybody wanted to do it in real time, just giving you the option. So this cool. comes All from right. a company called Focus Objectives. And um, they, they're a company that puts a lot of free stuff out there for Agile teams. And this is one of the really cool tools that, that we found that we, that we really enjoy using. It's just bringing it up. Yep, sorry. Here we go. So it just starts with some default data. So let's just say we have a project. So let's say it's you know, 5-21-2019. So we put today's data in. We're going to forecast from today. Um, we look at our backlog, and we look at its order. And let's just say we have an estimated ordered backlog. And it's a, we add up all the points from where we want to get stuff from the, that point all the way up. And it's 150 points. So we just put that as our low guess because we know it's going to be at least 150 points. Maybe we look at previous releases we've done, and we say, from when we started around this time frame, how much have we actually added from scope? And you can measure that from previous sprints and get some empirical data to get this high guess. But let's say at this point we don't have that, so we're going to make a guess. This will be our one guess. And we say, we think it's going to be about 200 on the height. We'll get about another 50 points from our script reviews, from feedback from our stakeholders. So we say it's between 150 and 200. We're going to say it's within that range. The third option here says there's a low guess and a high guess. The low guess, well, one, means that we don't split any of the product backlog items. The high guess of three that's currently in there means that they could split up to three times. So it's going to be arranged to not splitting and splitting three times. Because sometimes work that's bigger splits multiple times. I feel like two and three might double count each other sometimes. So to keep things consistent, I like to do number three, set it just a one, and just not use that field. You put in your sprint length, so you got one week in there for default. Let's just say we're doing a two-week sprint. Hmm. Oh, you got to drop the drop down. Yeah. It's just hardwood. Yeah, it's on a different screen. Okay. So now let's just say we're here. What it's doing right now is it's... Uh, it's using the estimate right here that says between low and high, and it's one to five. But let's just say we're starting off, we're a brand new team, we don't have any empirical data of what we can do, and so we're gonna guess. Let's just say we guess our team does between 10 and 20 points of spread. Goes ahead and runs 500 simulations, boom, we have to do forecast. Cool, so that's, that's useful. Maybe I wouldn't share this with stakeholders yet because there's no empirical data proving out this forecast, but it gives me an idea as a product owner what might happen if we are in this range. Then I go to that throughput samples, and um, sorry. if I go over to these samples where it says in the orange here, actually you're entering all your data in the orange. Let's just say we put in what's actually happened. So sprint one, maybe we get 10 points done. And then sprint two, let's say we get 30 points. And then maybe we get five. And then 40. And then 20, and then 10, and then 50. I'm making no, now you're just going to ruin it. 20. Okay, fine, whatever number. So right. you're actually running out of story points at this point. So this is like saying like the last seven sprints, we had that data. We still have 150 points at this point. So you would rerun this, add a new data point in after your sprint, reduce your total guess, and redo the forecast. If we're doing this after this first point. Now we can flip this to data. 
runs that 500 simulations and says, hey, we have some real data that gives us some kind of estimation of what is going to happen. In all likelihood, with this one scenario we put together, 50% chance on the 8th of October, 85% uh, basically will lead to November 5th. So it's probably going to be sometime in the beginning of November, beginning of October in that range, depending on what your confidence interval is. You know, you want a coin flip chance that we're going to hit it? Or do you want 85, which is pretty high, right? Just like the weather, like it says 85% chance of rain. You could not rain, but it's probably going to rain, you know? So pick your, pick your risk tolerance there. So this is pretty cool. Now, just for the sake of time, we're going to show you a couple things, but you don't, we're maybe not going to go through it all. Let's go to the charts. Uh, if you scroll up, this just gives you the distribution of those scenarios. So we said it was 500 scenarios before. You can just see, like, this is what happened, how many of the scenarios got done by each date. Probably cool to look at, but not something I might probably would share that with stakeholders. I don't think that's that valuable to them. This, one just, yep, this is your cone of uncertainty, kind of like Jeff showed before. This is 50 of the samples of how they're trending and what dates they'd be done. So it just gives you a range of them. If we go to risks, yeah, we can enter in like, hey, uh, there's a 30% chance that we're going to find between 10 to 20 points worth of performance issues. So then it adds 30% of the time, 10 to 20 points into this simulation, redoes the calculation, and we can, yeah, like just going to put, uh, I think, 100% chance that we're going to lose 15 to 20 points because Christmas is happening and the team's not going to do the work, right? They're, they're not going to be gone, they're going to be gone for a week during Christmas. So we'll go back to forecast, and now we have some new dates and simulates. We can add all this stuff in there. And the dates change a little bit. Now it looks like a little later in the year, right? Um, so cool. We have this. And then we're going to talk about some of the other ways to use this in the, in the, when we get out of this document. But let's scroll down. I know there's some people here that said that they're using SAFE right now to do API planning. So how I've used this with SAFE is let's just say you say there's six two-week sprints. How much work do we actually think we can get done? So based on the empirical data we have, this data says we can get 85% of the time we should get 90 points done. That means you probably should stop planning at 90 points or somewhere around there. Like, let's not go to 170. There's only a 5% chance you're going to hit that. So this can give you the, uh, you know, we did the, you know, this to five on how confident do we feel that we're going to get all this stuff done. A lot of times in PI planning, well, this could be using data to do it instead of how do you feel about it. So apply data and then maybe apply emotion after that. Cool. Questions, thoughts on this? We're going to explain this a little bit more after we jump out, but yeah. This is just for a single week, correct? This is for one backlog and we want to get down to this certain point. Yep, you give an ordered backlog, that's what this is, is for. Yeah, and to add on just a little bit more, like you can do it for a feature, you can do it for a release, you can do it whatever that line in the sand is, that this is the scope that we're looking to deliver. This is going to help us articulate when when will it be done, essentially. If you've got multiple teams working off of one backlog, you just add up the total of their velocities and put that in that other screen. So you can use it for multiple teams, too. Back on. All right. So we did that. Uh, so a couple things to consider here. Garbage in, garbage out. So I remember back in my development days, um, I'd be developing and all of a sudden a project manager would come around and they would say, 
I need to fill out um, some stuff for my Monte Carlo. How long do you think it's going to take you to do this development task? And I would say, I don't know, four weeks? They'd be like, that Jeff guy's on the sand bay. I'm going to say two weeks. You know, he can get that done in that amount of time. And then I'm going to go up to the next person and say, hey, how long is it going to take you to do that testing? And they're going to say, I don't know, eight weeks. And like, that always takes longer, 10 weeks. And then they're going to say, okay, how long is it going to take to do um, the deployment? And somebody else is going to say, I don't know, two weeks. And they're like, okay, two weeks. And you know, they keep asking all the development testing tasks and they accumulate all these, these inputs, these guesses, and they put them in and they simulate a bunch of guesses, and then we get guesses and then forecast. What's different about this is the empirical data. And so I rediscovered this a couple years ago, and it just made a huge difference for forecasting. That's why it's so much different than the past, I think. Yeah, one of the, one of the other things that I, I'd like to add in on here, because I, I think it's so often overlooked, when we're, so we're talking about product ownership, we're talking about Scrum. The game changer in Scrum is the increment. We're no longer trying to forecast the phase-gated approach of waterfall development. We are forecasting using empirical, using empirical data of incremental progress on a product. Um, which is really a fundamental shift in how we even go about using this tool. So again, it's not forecasting phase-gated, phase-gates, or development phases of a product. It is the incremental approach that really makes us even more powerful now versus how we were using it previously. Right. All right, prediction intervals. So this is, prediction intervals, is, there's a lot of stats behind this, but basically what that, says that we want seven data points. After seven data points, if you have an eighth data point, so eight sprints of data, you really don't get that much more confident. You add like another two and a half percent confidence that it's gonna be between your high and your low range. So after seven, you're probably good. I think if you're doing seven two-week sprints, that's 14 weeks. If you're continuously improving, probably a lot changes in 14 weeks. So I'd recommend a rolling average of seven sprints. You probably can start forecasting at five. You probably have enough data at that point. But just do this rolling average of seven, um, and that's probably good enough. Just think if you did 20, then you'd be almost a year out. Like, that's a long, that's a long time. A lot of data, a lot of things changed within that time period. Okay? Okay, story points versus counts. So sometimes you may not have, you might use story points when you're, um, for bringing work in, but you might not have to the point of the back where you want to forecast to, estimate it. And if you don't have that, you could use counts. There was a study done uh, with um, Bradley and Carnegie Mellon where they came together and they looked at like 10,000 uh, projects. And they looked at the forecast using points versus counts. And what they found was only like a 3% variation between uh, the forecasts when you use points versus counts. was not much. But what they also found, an interesting little tidbit here, if you assign hours to story points, it's like 100%, hundreds of percent off. Like, it, it makes a huge difference. So you never want to put hours to points. There's, they're relative points. That's what they're supposed to be used for. Um, but you could just use counts. And so what you would do is you just, instead of being 150 to 200, it might be 40 to 50 PDIs that we think it's going to be, or features, or whatever we want to estimate. And then we would just say, well, it's our velocity is just the number of things we got done in sprint. So it might be things like 4, 5, 10, you know, something like that. And we just look at that. Another interesting thing to do if you're, I know we have people in the audience here that are using SAFE and doing PI planning. Next time you, you do your PI planning and you look at your six sprints, just count how many PBIs that you're forecasting for each sprint and how many you've actually got done in the past. I'm guessing it's a pretty tight range. It's probably like, let's just say it's seven to 10. You probably know you're within the seven to 10. So maybe that's a, uh, 
might be a more value, removing a non-value-added step by removing the story points in some cases. If you're a mature team that's already breaking things down to similar size items already, you might not need that step, and that might be a way to mature your teams and get rid of something. Okay, so that's a bonus item. All right, so let's return to why. We want to take emotion out of the game, right? Like, too often, these forecasts become very emotional. Um, I've got this, this story when I was a consultant, and I went, and it was like one of the first days, and, and uh, this project manager who just became a scrum master had made this forecast that when this big project was going to be delivered, and it was months and months going to be delayed, and he had to go into the steering committee, and I was pairing with him, and uh, like it was like his throat to choke, like everybody was jumping on this guy, because like he needs to make sure that he gets this date fixed. He doesn't do any of the work, and everyone stole all the people from the team that he was working with, so he had nobody left to do the work. But it was his fault yet, and it was just like this emotional thing. I'm like, okay, let's take that out of the way. Let's use this Monte Carlo. Let's bring this back and say, here's, this, here's what the data says. If you want to do something about it, this is on you guys to help support us. And so it's just a, you can't argue data. It's just data, it just is. Um, you can argue with it's somebody's personal estimate. And you, we have a friend oh, Summer's quote? Yeah, Summer's Okay, quote. yeah. So another, Summer Lawrence, another great PST out there. Um, quite a quote that I stole from her, and I love talking about it. Whenever you want to remove emotion from a conversation, just apply math. So this is a great tool to basically take emotion out of the game. We're just going to apply some math, some empirical evidence to say, this is what we used in the past. We're going to plug it into an advanced simulation tool. This is the forecast that's giving us help. All right, here's our risks that we've come for. Here's our certainty factor that we're putting into it. Like, this, this isn't this isn't fake news. Uh, this is real empirical data. Don't get, don't argue with me about it. Let's just have a conversation around what are the changes we want to make to achieve the goals that we're trying to hit. All right. So use forecast to drive plans, not plans to drive forecasts. So what I mean by that is. You can create multiple forecasts with different scope levels and say, well, if you don't like that you know, November date, what if we cut the scope to this? What if we reduce these risk factors? Then we delivered it in September. Do you like that better? I'm like, I do, but I like the date better, but I don't know if I can live with that, that limited scope. Cool, maybe we can find something in between. And you just like keep playing with it and then you kind of know what that scope is that you could actually deliver and what your stakeholders would be happy with and you can kind of balance the date with that. So if you're doing this in advance enough, these forecasts, you can actually make changes, but when you get way late in the game, you can't do that. So start early, use these forecasts to help you figure out what's really included in the release you're doing and where we should cut scope and where we don't, where we shouldn't. Yes, onward to phase two. All right. Can I have that? Yes. Oh, I, thought you I was going to throw up the notes so, I could drop it. So if we were, if, if product ownership and product owners in general were uh, a member of the X-Men, they would be Wolverines. Wolverine has two superpowers, right? So the first first superpower uh, is, be, is helping you answer the question, when are we going to be done? So uh, we didn't pull the audience, so we normally do, so I'll just stop and pretend like I did at the beginning. How many of you are product owners right now on your, in your current roles? Cool. How many, um, uh, actually, people who are not product owners, out of curiosity, what are you doing here? What, do you, what are your roles? Scrum Master. Scrum Master, kudos to you, sir. Fight the good fight. <laughs> what was the other? I'm a business analyst. I work with product managers. Okay, awesome. Any other roles out there? I manage a team of business analysts that are kind of with product. Okay, awesome. 
it just helps us to know, because we're going to use um, a, a few more scrummy, scrummy terms jumping into here. And so if you're like, Jeff, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, just raise your hand, throw it out there. So where is it? Okay, so the first thing, if we can forecast when value will be delivered, how do we validate that value was actually delivered? So before I jump to the next slide, all the product owners who raise your hand said, that's me. Per the Scrum Guide, what is your responsibility? Anybody shout it out? Customer value? You're damn close. So this is, this is right out of the Scrum Guide. So the product owner is responsible for maximizing the value of the product resulting from the work of the development team, word for word. You are the value maximizer in, in software development, in, in Scrum. So how do you do that? Um, first, let's answer this question, another poll the audience. What's value? What are you, what have you, uh, what are you using to measure value in your context today? Cost savings. Cost savings, fantastic, dollar saved. What else? Time savings. Time savings, okay. What else? User satisfaction. User satisfaction, awesome. NPS, love it. What else? Sales. Sales, all right. Revenue growth, fantastic. What else? Savings and tech debt. Savings and tech debt, all right. So uh, new new feature functionality that we're trying to, what, what is that? Uh, well, you're not increasing your innovation rate. rate and, yep. and your ability to work on new stuff to really get you more money in the future right because you move faster. Awesome. All, all great stuff. So often we, we talk about it in these, these three terms, right? Money, customer delight, and social good. Uh, in the professional Scrum product owner course, and this is the only kind of sales pitch out there out there, this is often how we articulate it when we're talking about uh, the benefit to the customer through um, in terms of happiness, benefit to the organization represented in money, and benefit to society, um, not necessarily uh, either of those two things. When it comes to that, though, that's often nonprofits, right? Uh, the, the amount of carbon emissions that are currently being put out. Um, can you think of another good example of that? That's the one I always use. I was just curious if there's another one. Maybe the number of people served for like a oh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation number of uh, number of uh, people inoculated against malaria. That that sort of thing. Like that would be their measurement of value, right? So the the first key question that I would have for you is: Does your Scrum team and your stakeholders have a common understanding of value, or does it look like this? So one of the most tragic stories that I have as a senior agile coach was going out and, and coaching a cloud infrastructure team. So this was about a year and a half, two years ago now. Um, and it was, it was a lot like, uh, I, I like to think on blockchain, um, because it was like, anytime you throw the word blockchain at something, all of a sudden your, your um, stock goes through the roof. But everybody was, was running for the cloud, right? Because that's gonna save us, the cloud is gonna save us. Um, especially when we're running on AS400. So uh, our organization was trying to figure out, hey, are we ready for the cloud? Can our applications go to the cloud? Should we be doing lift and ship? Should we be doing a full rebuild? What, what are our different options that are out there? So I was coaching a team. Uh, they were about three months into their, into their project, um, doing a POC, a number of different applications, trying those, those different uh, lift and shift, rebuild, et cetera, trying to get them out there. Rocking and rolling every two weeks, producing value every two weeks in a, in a sprint review, talking through with stakeholders, um, representatives of the organization, just killing it. And then about three months into the, into the project, 
Um, they, they walk into a sprint review and they said, hey, I, we, we think we did it. We finally were able to completely move this on-premise application up to the cloud. We validated all this stuff. Um, and we, we feel like we've hit the key objective. And the PMO person raises their hand and says, actually, you, you, you failed to, to deliver on the number one piece of value, which was authenticating that the, the federated um, single sign-on application or service that we were utilizing would work in this new hosted environment. And it was just kind of a, a, a completely deflating uh, moment for the team to that there was this complete and utter misalignment with the PMO. And the next day, the team was disbanded and shut down. Um, and it was all because there was this misalignment on value. So part of what I'm trying to, to throw out to you is not only is it key to understanding how you're going to measure value, but you have alignment on what it is for your team and your organization and your stakeholders and everybody who has that stake in the game. And thank you for nodding your head because it makes me feel good that I'm not the only person who went through that. But it is critical that everybody is in alignment, that we know what value is and we're measuring towards it. Yeah, once you think you've communicated enough what value is, and you've said it over and over time, and you're sick of saying it, you probably just said it enough at that point. Like you need to over communicate this with clarity, like again and again and again as a product owner. Have this conversation with everybody you can, your development teams, your stakeholders, other teams you're working with, anybody who will listen, uh, so that you're all aligned on this, because this is a common misalignment item. All right, so does your current product development process sound a little bit like this? First we build, then we build, then we build, we build, to build, build some more, keep building. But where is that measure and learn? So we, we mentioned a little bit earlier that, that tool, and man, I feel like I forget some things sometimes. And so let me take a step back. This entire first half of the presentation was meant to give you a tool to take away with. And this should feel like a different conversation at this point. The entire second half of this, when we're talking about value, is things that you as a product owner need to be taking away and having conversations with with your organization. So the first part, very tactical. We're going to give you this information to help you solve a problem so that you can focus on this. And this is really what I want to, to dive into. So this, 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 um, this slide was shamelessly stolen from Troy McGinnis. Um, he did a keynote speak at this last year, 2018 Agile Conference. Um, and who is this Troy McGinnis fellow? Well, he's the guy who runs that, that site that we were just showing you through, so Focus Objectives. Um, he's a pretty prominent uh, data analyst inside the Agile community, um, and he spends a lot of his time going out to very large, uh, very prestigious uh, organizations and helping them understand their data. And so when he's going out to these different companies, what he was looking for was, where is our analytical effort spent? That is, all the dashboards that we've got out there, our TFS, our DevOps, our Rally, or whatever, all the data that we're collecting, what are we doing with that data? What are we visually representing out there? And so he grouped it into these three general categories. We said status, in progress, when's it going to be done, what's currently being worked on is one of those categories. Selection and prioritization, or in other words, what's the next thing that we're going to be working on? How are we ordering that stuff and the you know, cost of delay or whatever we're doing to, to calculate that out? And then lastly, customer validation. Did we actually achieve those things that we were trying to do when we were building things? So measuring those is from very lot to, to very little. What he found was going out. So a lot of that um, selection and prioritization, uh, a, a little bit. He found a little bit of that being reported and used on the dashboards, but two to three times as much of that 
trying to answer the question, when's it gonna be done? What are we working on right now? And then scant, if any, validation of are the things that we're building actually solving the problems that we're trying to solve? And so if we think about of those these three different categories and which one is actually going to move the needle the most in our organizations, which one is gonna be providing us the most value to both ourselves and our customers, what he's throwing out there is we should actually be spending significantly more time validating the outcomes that we're actually going after. That is, there's a reason we're building these things. We're building things, we're, we're looking at story points or throughput or just all of these items on our backlog to achieve a goal. And let's actually go and validate if we achieve that goal. Because that is going to inform what we should actually be working on next. Something isn't done just because it moves to a state of done on your backlog. Something should be done because it has successfully achieved the goal that you're going after. In other words, we should be focusing on outcomes over outputs. And I'm really glad that that message has been echoed numerous times in this room. I've been hearing it from a lot of the different startups that are coming in, a lot of different presenters. And as Jeff had mentioned earlier, by the time you get tired of hearing it, it's starting to soak in with you and the rest of your organization. So I'm glad that we're starting to hear this so, so, more, uh, so much more frequently. And I was just listening to uh, product, this is product management, and the author of Lean UX just put out a new book, and it's out, Outcomes Over Outputs. So just continuing to reinforce the message that this is where we should be going. And surprise, surprise, that thing that we should be spending the least amount of time on, the when are we going to be done question, we just gave you a tool to help you answer that question. So you can mentally unload all of the effort that you have been putting into trying and answering that question so that you can free yourself up to answer these more important questions out there, which is are we actually having the impact by the things that we're building and the things we're providing to our customers? And yeah, open this tool like literally 15 minutes. Like that shouldn't be all it takes to create a, a forecast. Like, so now you spend 15 minutes on that, and you can spend all your rest of your time on these items, because this is the most valuable thing to be doing. So we, we mentioned feedback loops earlier, like when your build process starts to be build, and build, and build, and build. Well, what is that, right? And we, we see these things all over. Uh, build, measure, learn, probe, sense, respond, inspect, adapt, uh, whatever the last one is. Uh, but order is important. So we say build, measure, learn. But we actually, as product owners, should be thinking about it in reverse. That is, we start with what we want to learn. Because if we're just running a test to see what happens, we will always be successful at seeing what happens. Okay, that's not a goal. So we first want to figure out what it is we actually want to learn. Then we need to figure out how we're going to measure success. I don't care if that's an OKR, I don't care if that's whatever but we should have a clear line of how we're actually definitively going to say, yes, we achieved this outcome, or no, we didn't. And then lastly, we let the geniuses take over and actually build the thing that we're going after. Yeah, too often I think organizations just want teams to build, 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 because they think, oh, I've hired this development team, they should be building me stuff. And then validating stuff isn't really that important, or getting feedback isn't that important. I say do all that all the time, just little bits of it continuously. Like we used to do these big usability studies back in the day, and it would take months to go out and, and get all this data and come back. We'll just do a little bit of that, but always do it, but always be and always be figuring out what you're gonna measure next for the things that are coming, and always be building a little bit. Like it's it's not a 
just it's more of an agile approach, right? And anything we do in agile, it's like just do a little bit of everything all at once and don't save anything for any big batches or big buildups. And so that's we're just bringing this back to like trying to remind people that yeah, it's not always about the building. Cool. I've been hogging this for too much. Okay. okay. Jump into HDD. Yeah. So here's another tactical thing that you can do: hypothesis-driven development. So too often. Um, Teams are stuck on story, uh, user stories. We have to write it in, as a user, I want X so that I get Y, you know? Well, here's another format to think about that maybe starts getting you think, to think about what are those outcomes and what are those measures? So you write it in a little different format. So you can, you can write things as we believe that, it's important that we believe because we don't know this, we haven't validated this, that doing this capability will result in this outcome and we're going to know we have succeeded in this outcome when we see this measurable signal. And generally, with some time frame in there, we're going to put this in there. I was recently working with some marketing teams, and there was this like company mandate down, like everyone should use user stories. And like, but we don't really do stuff for users. Like, we're doing it for the company. We're marketing it. And this made so much more sense. And so, like, we had to get all this leadership behind and make this change. But this is, makes so much more sense in certain contexts for certain people. So we just used both for a while, and eventually we just went to using hypothesis-driven development. But you can use this all the time. And again, back to Jeff's quote there, you know, if you don't know, what was it again? If, you don't, if you're running a test to see what happens, you'll always be successful at seeing what happens. Exactly. So in this, we were saying, what are we actually going to test? And what should we see happen? And because we get this, you know, it's like getting pot committed in poker. Like, if you just do something, you're going to be like, ah, we only got that 1% increase. We thought we were going to get 10. Well, it's 1%. It's better than nothing. And maybe we actually made it super complex, and it's not worth that 1%, right? So then maybe we should actually back that out. But we're so stuck on something because we put this effort into it. So this helps us hold us you know, to the outcome that we're looking for, one measurable signal. Quick time check. How are we doing on time? About 15 minutes left or so? Yeah. Okay, awesome. Perfect. You had a question, what's up? Uh, so you're talking about outcome. You're referring to a business outcome, not an output, Yes, yes. Yep. So this could be like, um, we're an e-commerce site, and we're gonna, we're gonna add... A new workout for our checkout flow. A new checkout workflow, right? Um, which we're hoping will result in less abandoned cars. So, great, we build out a... We, we talk about these metrics as far as activity, output, outcome, and impact. And I like telling the story. Sorry, I just kind of jumped on things. Okay. Okay. So let's pretend we, we were thinking about those four categories of metrics. So if we were thinking about activity, our team spent 200 hours last spring working on this new workflow. So that was the activity. The output was they created or they finished these five PBIs on the backlog. And because of these five PBIs, it was to create a new checkout workflow. The outcome of that was a reduced cart abandonment rate, abandonment rate of 5%. Cool, that's a user-based behavior that we were able to change, which was the outcome. Now, the impact of that was we grew, grew our revenue by 7%, 10%, 3%, whatever that number happened to be. But we think about that transition from activity to output as more of a team-based metric, and then outcomes and impact to more of a product and organizational impact. And if we're talking about those types of metrics and where we want to put incentives on those, if we put incentives on activity, all right, well, I'm just going to work a whole bunch of time, but it may not actually equate to anything. Or if we put incentives on story points or throughputs, 
fantastic, we did 100 story points this sprint, but it doesn't mean we delivered anything to the organization, right? So if we put incentives over on the outcomes and the impact side, that's where we want to start leveraging, because right? it doesn't really matter those team-based metrics. We really want to focus on the outcome and impact, and this again helps lead us towards that. Yep, and so you're going to get stuff to done, right? And you're going to put it in, and there's going to be a validation period, and that's where you're going to validate all this stuff that's actually happening. You've already preset, you know, what you're going to, what you're going to build it, and what you're going to measure, and what you hope to learn with using this format. All right, so we're going to jump into some MVP examples. Like MVP's been misused and abused and renamed and to many different things over the years. And so we just want to anchor, anchor you in a couple different MVP practices that are out there yeah. and how we've used those in the past. Yeah, real quick, when we're talking about MVP, um, it, this whole section and we'll be upfront about it, it's just a lean, like, or excuse me, we just stole it all from Lean Startup. So if you're like, hey, that sounds really interesting, go read Lean Startup, it's all in there. But when we're using MVP, that's where the term comes from, minimum, minimum viable product, it's the maximum amount of validated learning from the minimum amount of your product, okay? So when we're talking about validated learning, that's all the stuff that we've been talking about. We can make all the assumptions in the world that what we are building is the right thing and it's not validated until we put it in front of a customer and they validate that assumption at the beginning. So again, the maximum amount of validated learning from the minimum amount of product. That's where MVP comes from. Take it away. Cool. All right, so there's the first type of MVP. It's called a promotional MVP. And what a promotional MVP is, is it is something that um, doesn't really exist, but it's just to get buy-in or get user um, feedback or maybe get funding. So a classic example of this is Dropbox. So when Dropbox was getting started, they were trying to get money, venture capitalist money, to do this file synchronization thing. And people weren't getting it. They're like, I don't really understand what it's going to do and how it's going to work. So they created this three-minute YouTube clip that basically said, hey, you go on your phone, you add some files here, you pick up your laptop, oh, here are these same files, I can edit them. I go back to my phone, they're edited. I go to my tablet, oh, they're, just, they're here, and they're edited, and I can edit them again, they show back on my desktop. And they just kind of showed this rotation of how the files, how it would work. Nothing was there, they just, they just made it look like that, like it was working. Um, and overnight, pretty much, they went from like 5,000 beta users to 75,000 beta users, because people got it once they, once they could show this little video. And so then they're able to get funding, and then you know the rest is history, right? That they were one of the first companies to do that. What companies can also do is you can do something very similar for a business case. So instead of writing this, you know, hundred-page business case, what if you just create a little proof of concept of like this is how it would work within this application if we could just do this, and you bring that to whomever approves it in your organization? I think that'd be a lot more powerful than. Here's a whole list of all the things it's going to do because you don't know if it's really going to do it. But what if it works something like this? Would this be valuable to you? And then you could maybe even bring back some user feedback or something to this um, to this event. All right, another one, mining MVP. So this is something we've used at Cuny Mutual. So we had this uh, application uh, like help generate loans for credit unions, and we had this great idea. Like we have all this information about people that are filling out this stuff about their, their loan application. What if we just pre-filled it into each credit union's loan application page? And so instead of contacting a loan officer, you just automatically just fill out the application. Seems like a great idea, but we should validate that. So we just created a little button up there that said, apply for your loan now, look like it worked and everything. And then if people clicked on it, 
we just tracked that. We had some analytics behind it. And we did the numbers, I think, were something like a thousand people or somewhere around that range like went through this process before 10 people clicked on it. It was like a super, super low percentage. So this just was a good no buy or no build decision for us. We just said, hey, this seemed like a great idea. It seems to fit, you know, what our users might want or what they think they want, but actually no one's going to use it. So let's not build it because this is going to be really expensive to integrate with everybody's own application site. So that's one way to do this. So you're just mining. Basically, you're putting something out there to get information so you know whether you should build the real thing or not. Okay, pretty easy one. So landing page MVP. So this one, um, we both used to work at Centera. And, um, for the people who work at them here, I know you're super familiar because you stole like half the people who used to work at Centera. Kudos <laughs> to you. Um, but when we were at Centera in our dev center, uh, it was kind of like a custom software shop, right? We would have companies come to us, say, hey, I've got this great idea for a product, but I have no idea how to build the products. Help save us. And uh, we would jump in, and this was our go-to solution, which was the landing page. So um, landing page is just that. It's just the initial landing page of your application just to set up and validate that your system can do that thing. So uh, with many organizations that we were working with, this was a critical part. So during this, in Sprint 1, when we're setting up our CICD pipeline, all of our DevOps um, uh, team members that were working on getting our pipelines in place, we would have one feature maybe put in place, and that would be the landing page. And for any, many organizations, this was a game changer for them. Seeing working functional software within the first two weeks of a, a product team being stood up in place with little to no time beforehand was a huge trust builder with uh, the company. Um, and, and it then you, um, acts as a springboard to continue to build on top of. So if we think of Scrum, iterative and incremental, right? That increment, that, that game changer that I was talking about earlier, it starts right here. This is the first increment of potentially releasable software, and now we're just incrementally adding on top of that through the duration of that product development life cycle. Yep. And sometimes people will be like, what value is just a one-page homepage make, or whatever, it's one application getting it all the way to production? And the value, like Jeff was saying, is just it reduces a ton of risk, especially in large organizations when there's so much stuff that you have to get through to get to production. If you can get to production in the first sprint, every sprint after that's going to be easier. The, the lead time alone for the infrastructure, basically to get a web app, the server ready at, at CUNA Mutual was anywhere from three to six months. So having a web app in production, even if it's just a landing page, in two weeks, again, that's a game changer. So uh, I, I can't overemphasize how impactful something as simple as this can be for your organization. All right, Wizard of Oz MVP. What this is is like to your user or customer, it looks like this is a completely integrated solution and everything works seamlessly. But in the background, we've got a whole bunch of manual steps that are happening to make this work. So a classic example of this is Zappos. So what they did is when they were getting started, they're like, well, we don't really know when people will buy shoes online. And so let's take a bunch of people, we'll go to department stores, we'll take some pictures of these shoes, we'll put them out on a blog, we'll hook up PayPal, and uh, we'll see if people buy these shoes. Oh, they are buying the shoes? Then I'll take the money from PayPal and I'll go buy them from the department store and then I'll ship them off. Now I've got a business case. There's, there's, there's people willing to buy shoes online. Now I can put in all the infrastructure and make this whole process streamlined. But you proved out the business case and reduced the complexity first before you put in all the infrastructure to, to make this work. 
So you've got a good example of this where you were Yeah, so one of the other consulting companies that I'm working with was um, right now in, oh shoot, I want to say materials, they were building, we'll just say widgets, uh, building widgets and they were traditionally a B2B company and they were trying to test the waters of going B2C because that's kind of one of the big things that are going on right now with that industry. And so they had a mammoth ERP system that was set up and uh, to sell directly to these other uh, uh, businesses that were out there. And so they had gone through and figured out, okay, we want to build the Sitecore uh, CMS and just sell directly to our customers. We want to give it a try. That alone is maybe a quarter of a million dollar investment. But to actually plug it into our ERP system would probably be that plus another 250. So that whole thing would have been in the range of three quarters of a million dollars worth of investment. So what we did was, hey, let's just not do that, and you've got somebody internally, and we'll refer to this as swivel chair architecture. So what happens is a site court order comes into the system, an email goes to a human being individual, that human being individual swivels in their chair over to the ERP system, manually enters into information, gets some order information, manually swivels back into the site court instance, manually enters into that information, and again, to the customer, it's all transparent, or it's all not transparent. They don't see any of it, but they see their order information going through. And that was saved that organization $500,000 worth of investment just, again, to validate the, the key assumption was that a customer would buy directly from them versus having to go to this other business first because they weren't familiar with going right to the source for the sales. And once you've proven out the business case, then build in all the back end, right? So then you would do the integration right. this if it made sense. Right. Going, you proved it first. That's yeah, the, going back to MVP, right? Maximize the amount of validated learning. That's what these things are after with the minimum amount of product. So how do you know um, what you're building is really moving the measurement? This is an argument we get all the time because like, there's so many teams building so many things for our product. Uh, how do we know this thing that we did moved the bottom line? How do we know we got more sales because of this? Well, you can do this thing called A-B split testing. Um, one company that does this a lot is Intuit. So what Intuit does is during tax season when it's their most busy time of the year, they do QuickBooks and they do TurboTax, uh, are the two big products. They run somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 to 900 experiments. Um, and small little batches to say, hey, what's, what's this user doing, or how can we market this differently, or how can we tweak this functionality to make it better for our users? And so they're, they're actually getting real data to feed their decisions. We at q and Mutual just created this application, we had this hackathon, and it was like a console for uh, feature toggles, so you can turn on and off functionality. And now the next iteration of that that we're gonna be adding is like, we can release this to this small cohort, or this small cohort of users. And so we can actually put things out and then say, what does the user interactions look like with this functionality or this functionality or that functionality, and then we can validate that against that. Now we're pretty, I mean, there's a lot of companies been doing this for a long time. Like at Facebook, they do this all the time. They've got thousands of experiments going on just like this all the time. And pretty much any team, almost any developer can run any mini experiment they want with a few hundred users and put different versions out there to test different things, and then they get validated learning on what they should do for the, the main application. So this is this is a, just a good way to actually validate your learnings and know that your, the item you're doing that you built is actually moving the needle in whatever direction it is. Another really cool example of this I just heard uh, last week on, I think it was the Joe Rogan experience, but uh, they had an, uh, an AI expert coming in and talking about machine learning and how Tesla is using that with their, with their, um, their engines. 
And they actually do something very similar to A-B testing, but they call it shadow testing. And so what happens is they have, they release a, a new product version out to their cars, and I think it's almost weekly now, um, but it doesn't actually replace the current version that's running in their system. So they actually have both versions running in tandem, but the, the, the shadow testing is simply there to collect data um, to compare it against the, op, the current operating version. So in other words, they can, the, um, option A is running, option B is simply collecting data, and then they take it and they look at those key decision points and decide, well, what do we want it to be doing in these scenarios? And once they can validate it, because it's actually in a production environment, then that helps them influence, do we actually go ahead and overwrite this version of the software with this new production version? Or did we miss something and we actually have to go back and do some changes on it? Yeah, are the differences really the expected differences? Yeah. There's something new that's not expected and then we need to make that change, right? So, yeah. Awesome. All right, another one. Just go and see. This isn't an MVP example, but like this is just good advice. We give you a lot of data reasons, or a lot of things you can do from a, um, a structure standpoint, but just go and see. Go to the customers, go to your users, and see. So uh, we were doing this uh, project for Goodwill, and what we ended up doing was we would go on day eight of every sprint to a different Goodwill store and say, here's a use case, here's the application we're building for you. Um, can you just do this thing? And we would record the screen and watch what they were doing. And we do this with three or four users um, every single sprint. And then we'd have some validated learning. Be like, oh, they can't find the save button. They don't know what's on the top. Maybe we should move to the bottom. Oh, they don't know they can tab through this screen. Like, that would be so much easier than the mouse clicks that they're doing right now. And, and so we're like, we should add this functionality or that or make this more visible for them because they don't, we're, we're seeing real results that users aren't figuring this out. And then we go to a sprint review and you'd have these leaders or executives and they'd be seeing it and be like, you know what, I really think we should do X. And be like, actually, we just looked at it with five users and they all used it a different way and so that's why we changed it to this. Oh, cool, I didn't know that. And so then it would really, we'd make informed decisions instead of guessing and making assumptions. And, and then once you roll it out, like the users are like, hey, you built this just for me. They really don't understand how we use it, why we use it, and, and you're gonna have a lot more. The change management is gonna be so much easier because you've actually got their feedback all the way, along the way. And not all the time do we take all the feedback and apply it and it all has two days in the sprint. Like it was what we can fit in, we'll do, and what else, we'll go in the backlog, and then we'll just prior test against everything else. But whatever you can, like do some of that in-sprint testing with real users. It's a really cool way to do it. And I think what makes this one exceptional is like we actually went to different like stores, different users and tested it uh, real time. And it wasn't like you just walk downstairs or down the hall like at a normal company and just get users to use your product. It was, you know, people that were end users all that were kind of distributed. So it was it's just a cool way to do it. And you can do it with stuff that's not completely done. Like that's okay. As long as it's working, get feedback. That's valuable. All right, superpower number two, understanding and validating value. So this is one of the, again, we see this missed so often is that validating value delivery. And so we're hoping we gave you a bunch of ideas of ways that you can start to do that, not just give you a bunch of theory. So that's, that's kind of what we're hoping in this talk. So what do we learn? Validate the value and forecast when it's gonna be done. That's, that's the main take point. Man, we really stuck at the end there. All right, that's all right. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. If you feel the Milwaukee Product Brew is a community you'd like to be a part of, we'd love to have you join. Just go to meetup.com and search for the Milwaukee Product Brew. See you soon.